Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine here. This week, we are revisiting one of our past guests, Miss Amanda Rowan. So you may know her if you have ever taken a course with the Therapist Development Center, and you may know her voice very, very well as I do if you have used their materials to study for your licensing exam. So Amanda Rowan is a licensed clinical social worker here in California, and she's the founder and CEO of the Therapist Development Center. Since 2008, she and her team have helped 55,000, more than 55,000 therapists nationwide pass their state licensing exams with confidence. She actually majored in neuroscience and completed her senior thesis on the neuroscience of the learning process. And she earned her master's in social welfare from UCLA. She is a wealth of information and knowledge. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation that her and I have about a lot of different topics really, but primarily around suicidality, how we handle or um, don't handle suicidality within social work and within the mental health field. And she also tells us about her brand new course about uh, on the edge of life about suicidality and her inspiration for it. She gets a little personal and shares some of her personal story around, you know, what inspired the course and the creation process of it. So I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. We're going to hop right into it right after this ad from our sponsor, The Rise Directory. This episode is proudly brought to you by The Rise Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. We can talk forever about this stuff. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. We are here with Amanda Rowan, the founder of the Therapist Development Center. Welcome back, Amanda. It's been about a year since we've since we've talked to each other. Oh, wow. That went fast. It's so yeah. great to be back. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so excited to have you here. You have a lot going on. So give us an overview of kind of who you are and what you have going on right now. Sure. Well, I think it was the last time we spoke, we were talking about um, kind of the history of 
the therapist development center. So I won't get into all that again, but uh, yeah, I have this company that I started more than 10 years ago. That's um, the mission was to improve the quality of mental health services. And the starting point was helping people to prepare and take their tests with confidence for the licensing exams. And knowing that in preparing them for that, I was going to be able to help just get improved clinical skills, you know, across the board. And then the goal always has been to have a hub and a support for therapists over the course of their career, hence the name Therapist Development Center, as opposed to kind of just a test prep. So this is where we are today as we have launched um, a pretty robust um, library so far, a CEU library that's available uh, on all different core concepts and topics, um, supervision, law and ethics. And I'm most proud of um, and overjoyed to have released a course on uh, suicide. Yes. So that one is uh, on the edge of life introduction to treating suicidality. And did that just release at the end of March? Is that right? Yeah, March, it released on my birthday. Well, the day before my birthday, but um, yeah, so it March and we, um, but it's been a work in progress for me. My first time I thought of wanting to do this course was right after I had launched the test prep. And um, so it's been over 10 years that it's been buzzing in my, <laughs> in my mind and just kind of compelled to think that like of, you know, the test prep, if people out there used our test prep and liked it and found value in it and learned something from it, I'm hoping that that credibility can be leveraged for them to take our CEU courses. And in particular, um, this series that we're creating on, on managing suicide. Yeah, that's fascinating. So tell me, how do you how do you come up with, like, how do you develop your courses? Like what kind of research is involved? Do you have a team? Like, how do you, what does that process look like? Yeah. I mean, we, we have, um, I have a team of therapists and a lot of these courses that we're creating have been in progress or I've been working through them in my mind for the last few years. I took some time off to make more focus on my children but in that time, just I'm, I don't, I don't watch TV ever. Like I don't, I'm not a TV watcher. So my, I spend a ton of time reading and um, studying topics and researching ideas and getting clarity on different areas of clinical practice. And I also personally did 12 years of therapy, um, of therapy training, intensive postgraduate training in Gestalt therapy um, and was certified as a Gestalt therapist, which is an intensive process. And through that process, there's a ton of reading on different topics and themes. And so, and meeting just top, top therapist thinkers. I think one of the things I real, I realized luckily early on that there was almost this like secret world of therapists that were having conversations and kind of pushing the edge of clinical practice um, in a way that's much more phenomenological, which means kind of closer to the experience of an actual patient, where a lot of the research that we study in school and kind of talk about comes out of research institutes, mm -hmm. like, like universities, which are much more concerned about statistics, 
which means you have like a higher volume and you have control group, you know, there is this rigidity to that, that strips away, I think the heart and soul of clinical practice, but in this gestalt world that I trained in these top thinkers like Lynn Jacobs and Gary Yontif and Guy Pierre Tour and Yaki Martina, like people that are actively publishing papers in psychoanalytic and gestalt journals um, and having ongoing conversations about, you know, the nature of treating suffering in a really meaningful, intelligent, deep way grounded in, you know, philosophy. And to me, that, that world is what pulled me into being a therapist. That's I, I started studying gestalt therapy before I even thought I wanted to be a therapist, just because I thought it was so interesting and cool. And it was meeting these people that are the, the smartest people I've ever been um, around and smart in a way that is knowledgeable in theory and concepts and ideas, but more importantly, their ability to demonstrate it live in front of other clinicians. And you see good therapy just happen. I mean, like they can just sit down and do good therapy right in front of you. And like mind-blowing therapy where you see them immediately touch and get into somebody's issues. And so when I saw that, I was like, Ooh, I want to, I want to do this. And so the, the CEUs that we're putting out are in that vein. Mm. And most of the CEUs that you see out there are in the vein of, you know, um, I'm going to use air quotes around evidence-based practice because we talk about evidence-based practice, but we never actually, nobody actually looks at the evidence. It's true. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's evidence-based. You got a stamp. It's like, you know, the same thing with organic or these terms. And the problem is, is when you actually look at the evidence, a lot of times the studies that they're citing are on very narrow treatment groups are very narrow um, symptomology. Like there was one that was claiming you know, credit for treating PTSD. But when you actually look at the study, it was PTSD for people that only had PTSD and had no other co-occurring, like they stripped out the group to, to eliminate like 80% of the people that actually suffer from PTSD. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then they only looked at a very narrow group of symptoms that they were looking in the reduction of. And, and so, um, a lot of what's out there is in that framework. And what I wanted to bring forward was this return to what I think is the origins of our field, which is psychology. Psyche means soul. So when the term was created before we had evidence base, before, before psychology took a turn to science, um, I think with the hope of being seen more seriously, um, it was, it had a spiritual quality. It had a focus on purpose and meaning and engagement in the world and a, you know, a, a, literally a soulfulness, you know, study of the soul. And that's the path that I'm really interested in trying to get out there with this approach of having our, our um, CEUs grounded in a humanistic set of values that allows for using evidence-based techniques. Like as a Gestalt therapist, I use CBT techniques with a client. I do in a way that's grounded in a dialogic phenomenological approach that doesn't have an attachment to an outcome, but is more interested in, in for the client, what is the experience like, and where do they find supports and where do they meet resistance? And I'm hoping that these courses 
are going to allow people to kind of sink deeper into the material than you do when you're just focused on superficial techniques that don't feel connected in any way in a meaningful um, relationship with the client, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I was just thinking, because some people were saying um, they're complaining about how long courses are. And this, your courses are not for people who just want the CEUs as fast as possible and not learn anything. What I appreciate appreciate about your courses is that you really dive into the topics to provide a complete and full understanding and you integrate the different modes of learning. So audio, visual, you have handouts, you ask questions, you have, you know, pre and post tests, which I think is really, really important to facilitate that deeper understanding of these topics, especially for something as serious as suicide, because you don't want to be sitting in your office or out in the community at their house. And they said, yeah, I have you know, whatever right here, it's, it's going to happen tonight. And you're like, oh shit, what do I, what do I do? That CEU didn't, didn't prepare me at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you're touching on a serious issue in our profession. And that is that we are legally required to get 36 hours of continuing education um, every renewal cycle. And, and the, for the most part, people, I, I was guilty of this too. There got to be a point where I had given up on getting this is before I got into the Gestalt. And when I was doing my Gestalt trainings, I got all my CEUs met through those. So I didn't have to um, do outside. But once I was in the years that I didn't do that, you know, I shopped around for CEU options. I know th the beauty of our programs is that you're also getting it conveyed with the knowledge of the neuroscience of learning and how people actually take information in. So anyone that signs up for a full day training where you're just getting content, you know, talk to in a, in a big forum, like your brain's learning only 90 minutes max of that. So I think what happens for people is they're, they need their CEUs by law, they have to get them and they may try to get decent ones, but just kind of feel unsatisfied. And so then decide, well, why am I going to pay a lot for something I'm not going to be able to use in my clinical practice? Uh, and so they end up um, wanting to take the fast track, which makes sense. My hope is that people will, you know, enjoy our content so much that they would want to do it, even if they weren't getting CUs for it. You know, it's like I nobody becomes a therapist wanting to be a bad one. Everybody wants to be a good one. We are in this weird position where we have to kind of fake it till we make it with our clients, certainly in the beginning, but that can end up being, you know, perpetual that we don't actually admit to what we don't know. And so that with the development of our suicide course and really all of our courses, it's coming out of a dialogue with our clients and former customers. So we sent out a survey um, that people are welcome to find on our website. That, that's just an overview of people's interests and wants and needs around CEUs in general. And then we followed up with a group of people that had indicated one of the questions around suicide. Or we, so we asked us, we did a survey, which we cover in the course. And the results of that survey really match up with what the broader you know, research is around therapists' comfort level and training in suicide. And I don't have the exact numbers ahead in front of me, but what, what we, one of the things that was interesting, and I knew this to be true already, was for the, there's a lot of people who just aren't, haven't had any training. Now the laws required in certain states, including California, that they have to get a minimum of six, which is still ridiculous. 
Like it's ridiculous that in California you need to have seven hours of HIV, but only six hours of suicide. I mean, it's, it's so disturbing how many people, you know, prior to this law. And then the fact that those six hours aren't, they don't even give it a distinction of what those could be. And what you end up happening is these other courses, which we've surveyed where so much of the course is like going over statistics mm. about the different populations, which like you said, if somebody you're on with a client and they call you and they're, and they're suicidal, does it help you to know that this, this population has a higher percent of a rate or they're not in that? Like the last place you should be going when you're sitting with somebody who's thinking of killing themselves is the statistics. So it's like, why is this included in the course? But it is because it becomes kind of a, a filler. And I feel like with this um, course, my hope is that people are and should be scared of the liability that they hold in treating somebody who's suicidal. We have no idea when a client comes through the door, if they're going to be, if they have suicidality, statistically speaking, a high number of them do or will. And so how prepared are you to actually meet the standard of care to treat that client? And if that doesn't scare you, something's wrong because it's a serious, it's a serious, um, undertaking. And Hey, it's Catherine here. I hope you're enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to listen to this ad from our sponsor. This whole thing for me came out of an experience where in a given week in my private practice, this is after doing all these trainings and having a robust network of consultants. And I was in a, 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 cons a weekly consultation group, everything. I had three clients who were, um, had different levels of suicidality in a, in a given week. And it completely rattled me, you know, it was, um, and it made me think, oh my God, like, am I doing, am I doing this right? Am I doing everything I should be doing? What if something happens to them? What am I, am I documenting everything right? And, and, and I think because I had three at the same time, um, it added to the, but I pulled my car over coming back from work and just was rattled. And I was like, this is why I didn't go to med school. I didn't want people's lives on my hand. Oh my God. I have three people's lives on my hand. And I think you know, there's a balance between recognizing how much responsibility we actually do have to take on emotionally for someone, but professionally making sure that we understand how to assess and manage suicide to meet the standard of care. And the statistics show very, there's a huge group of therapists that aren't trained in it. And then what's interesting is there's also this weird subset that are trained in assessment, but not trained in management. And that just cracks me up. And that's my issue with the, um, the Sean Christopher Shea model. I really like a lot of the things in his book. Um, and, but the problem is it's, it's just on assessment. And I'm like, but wait, wait, wait. So you, this, I, and I met him and I had lunch with him and I was like, so what about management? And he goes, oh no, no, we're, I just focus on assessment. And I'm like, what? Like, that's not helpful. It's like, oh yeah, I can identify a heart attack. I can't do anything about it, even though I'm supposed to be the one trained you. So to me, the fact that he would leave out the management piece speaks to the issue of like treating suicide in this way that's um, very mechanical and almost like takes it, it's like a cancerous growth in the patient that we just have to cut out as opposed to my view of it and my readings and research around, you know, the experience. And, you know, I share openly in my training that if this is something I've personally struggled with multiple times in my life. And so I pull on what's that experience 
like. And when, when, what I coined the suffering stranger, which comes from um, this book by Donna Orange, who's a deep, amazing thinker in psych contemporary psychoanalysis. And the suffering stranger is from a, a, a um, philosopher named Emmanuel Levinas, who studied the philosophy of ethics. And he said, the first philosophy has to be the philosophy of ethics. Why are we here? Like, what's our moral obligation? And he said, we have a moral obligation to the suffering stranger. And that I think is so beautiful and has been what's been my life. I mean, that's my been my life path is that. And so for me, this idea that when somebody experiences suicidality and they start being having the thought that they want to kill themselves, and I'm telling you this from, from my own experience, it's like it wasn't there. And then all of a sudden it shows up. And at some point, hopefully you get over it and it goes away. But it's part, it, it basically for, for my point of view and what I want therapists to understand is that when people are having suicidality, that is the voice of their suffering stranger. It's a part of them that only comes out when their life has become so stressful and so complex and so kind of overwhelmed with that their, their regular coping skills have been maxed out. And so the only option then comes in as, well, you don't have to be here anymore. And so I, but that is a voice like that, that, that experience comes out of this web of a life that's become overwhelming. And so when you just, when your target is these other approaches are just get rid of it like silence that stranger, shut up, shut up, shut up. Okay. We, we got this. We, you know, we've done all these things to quiet it. You don't deal with the underlying conditions, including shame and loneliness that are the conditions that this, that this suffering stranger would even visit the person. And so I feel like the, the nice thing with our course is that so many therapists themselves are personally touched by it. The survey showed, um, and then you add in if they're touched by a, a, a um, family member or, and then a client, and it's pretty much everybody I'm sure listening to this has been touched in some side. And it's something we don't talk very much about in a deep and meaningful way. And that has to change. Like people need to be comfortable talking to each other, even about what happens after you die. Like these are important questions that lead to existential crises that lead to people just feeling so lonely and isolated in the world that they kill themselves. Yeah. And I think you touched on a really important topic where we were trained on how to assess, right? Even in grad school. So we have a lot of new social workers listening right now. And we're trained on how to assess. So we're able to say, oh, yep, you're definitely suicidal, but that's it. And I mean, hopefully we could call in someone for help, but a lot of times. Well, it's so funny. Cause so that reminds me, I had, I was a group supervisor at an agency that I volunteered at to um, train interns. And one of the trainees in the group called me um, about a client who was, who had suicidality. And, um, she had already called her. So she had an individual supervisor who was her point person. So she called me and she's like, can I ask you a question about this client with suicidality? And I was like, sure. And I said, but you know, did you talk to your supervisor? And she's like, oh yeah, I did. But I wanted to talk to you too, which to me was a sign that she didn't feel comfortable with the answer that she'd gotten. 
but I didn't, I didn't say anything at the time. So I'm like, sure. So she's like, well, he, you know, he's suicidal. And I was like, okay, well, can you, how is it showing up for him? Oh, well, he wants to, you know, he's had thoughts of killing himself. And I'm like, okay, can you get, and it was like, there's this checklist, this yes. checklist that all the models use that are evidence-based that, that you're supposed to go through a checklist. And that checklist, again, allows for it to be researched as you know, valid and whatnot, but it doesn't get you at all to the heart of the experience. And I said, okay, well, I want you to call the client back and I want you to be able, when you call me back, I want you to be able to give me details about when did, you know, when did the thoughts first come? Are they currently having them? You know, what level of desire are they pulling them or pushing them? You know, what's keeping them here? You know, I gave her this list of, I want to know the unique situation of this person that's led to them having thoughts of suicide. And I want to know the nature and duration and, you know, onset and offset and level of distress that they're having and who else have they told about it? You know, I'm giving her this whole rundown. I'm like, paint the picture for me of this person's life where they are. And she was like, oh, and the thing is, is that that's the assessment that needs to happen. But that assessment is also treatment because what the person is coming in for when they're coming in for therapy is they're having these really distressing experiences and they don't know how to make sense of it. And they don't know how to cope. That's what leads people to therapy. This one friend asked me like what most people come to therapy for. And I'm like, well, we've gotten to this point where we have these medical model terms of anxiety and depression those are just collections of symptoms. I mean, underneath that, what people go to therapy for is that they're suffering and they don't know how to make it go away. And so they come to a therapist with the hope of helping them make it go away. The only way that we can actually make it go away is if we first understand it, really understand it. And that's more than just a checklist of, you know, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? It's like, well, when, like right now, you know, are you having thoughts of them right now? No. Well, good. You're not having, yay. And one of the things, so the first course we have on suicide gives this kind of foundational um, basis for this model that I created called the edge of life. So even in the name itself, it's, it's giving you a sense of, of the phenomenology of the, the lived experience of um, what it's like when someone's on the edge. And the thing is, is if people have to remember if somebody's talking about it and telling you about it, they don't want to do it. If they want, if they wanted to do it, they're not going to tell you. But what they are looking for is, is this person capable of carrying my burden? Can they help me understand my suffering? I'm coming to you with a hope that you're going to help me. If your reaction is to discount, push away, get uncomfortable, get anxious, look at me with like terror, like, oh my God, they're suicidal. Now what do I, you know, do, which is what people do, um, they're going to pick up on that. And then the message is this person, this hope for me, isn't hope. And they go the opposite direction. So that's why it's so critical. I feel like for us to first, just acknowledge, we have a problem in our field that people aren't comfortable actively treating this and they're taking CEU trainings that are not going to actually help them in the room and manage it. And then looking to, to say, so our model goes over that it gives this new way of assessing risk called the um, courage to live continuum, which we took the Columbia assessment tool on risk and basically put it from a phenomenological experience. So how would the client actually experience it? What does it feel like when you're in that stage? How are you going to talk about that experience? And it helps the therapist to be able to navigate. I mean, one of the things 
that I found so interesting is this is similar with the test prep. There's all these test prep companies out there started to be people who haven't even taken the exams and they're putting this stuff out there. Now, when you're a consumer, you don't know that. Like you don't know that this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Like if I'm buying a guidebook to go to Paris and I've never been to Paris, I could buy a guidebook and I could read the whole thing. It could be completely wrong. And I could have no idea because I've never been there myself until I get there. And I'm like, oh God, I read about Paris, Illinois and not Paris, France, These are two different cities. I mean, you don't want that to happen on your test prep and you don't want that to happen when you're in a room with someone who's, you know, who's suicidal. I think one of the gifts of my program is this integration in looking at what's out there is considered the best practices like cams is considered that one of the best practices and then saying well what is it missing and why wouldn't i use this in clinical practice and the problem with the collaborative assessment and management of suicide approach is it similarly came out of a research idea and it like uses a lot of handouts that the client kind of rates you know of these areas of your life rate them on a scale of one to five being the most stressful the least stressful the problem with that is is that if you and i are engaged in a a therapy relationship for eight months ten months a year two years and you know me really well and i come in and things have happened in my life and i'm feeling suicidal uh if you are now using your cams model to be following the model that's evidence-based with your claim, you know, if you're claiming to have done that or what the industry wants us to, to kind of have, you would stop what you're doing in your session and we would shift over to using worksheets. And so impersonal. It just I mean, shut- that's the problem. That's what yeah. we're not acknowledging is that these CEU courses that are put out there, the stuff that they're actually having you do, most people aren't, they're just pragmatically not going to do it because it doesn't fit. It's impersonal. Like all of these, you nailed it. All of these other approaches are impersonal by nature because they came out of a model that their goal was to be evidence-based as opposed to being practical and sensible in a clinical situation. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I, I don't know if those people that have, you know, done the models have themselves personally experienced suicidality. None of them say they have. I have, you know, it's like, and that's been one of the tools for me. And from the point um, that I first had the idea of wanting to do this, which was 10 years ago, but knew I needed to, I was raising my kids and, and, and needed to really you know, cultivate this um, course. I knew it, I knew that I it was going to be big and important for me. But in that ten years, I went through two of my darkest periods that I'd gone through at all. I, which was first when I moved to Santa Barbara, and the tests were changing, and I had to redo everything for TDC, and it was completely overwhelming. And I had young children, and was in a new place. I mean, it was a perfect storm for all these life stressors that that as a therapist, I should be aware of, but I wasn't really. And, um, I, I was, um, borderline hospitalized at that point. And then after my dad died five years ago, I went through my darkest days. So from the point I've decided that God just wanted me to get some more research. So like on top of all the reading, he's like, okay, we're going to have you go through it twice more too. So you really get a feel for what it's like in like those dark corners of hell where you don't want to be here anymore. And so I think that's the piece that goes hand in hand with the course is, um, I mean, the, the, the power of the course is that it's, you know, it's based, we are looking at all the best practices in the same way that we looked at all the different test prep courses out there and said, Hey, is somebody else doing a great job on this? Because if they are awesome, but what we found was, no, these have serious shortcomings 
And they're missing the mark because if all you're trying to do is extract that suicide suffering, you're missing that there's these conditions in the client's life that approaches like CBT don't get to, which are core relational experiences like loneliness, shame, grief, fear, guilt, anger, pride, you know, you know, all of these, um, these are frameworks about relational issues and it's our relationships to things in the world that bring us suffering, whether it's relationships to our own, ourself and our self-worth or our career, but certainly with other people. And so many of these um, evidence-based approaches don't get down into that stuff. And my hope is the suicide course will also just introduce back into the conversation the importance of, of actually really making an effort to understand someone else's experience and know that, that your clients are coming, like I said, because they're, conf they're confused as why they're suffering. Right. So taking the time to actually understand how they make sense of the world, understand aspects of their life, um, kind of helping connect dots for them. That's the part that somebody walks out of there feeling like, you know, okay, I am in this deep, dark hole, but this person's really making an effort to try to get down here to me, to try to really understand where I am. Like we, we fundamentally want to be understood. Yeah. So it sounds like overall, if we're going to, you know, say we're in the field, we're don't really, we're not very confident. We don't really know what to do. We've just given, been given an assessment by our um, boss. Right. So, okay fine, do the assessment. For me personally, I've never ever whipped out a paper and had them do a checklist. I would have a conversation with them, still go through the assessment, but still have empathy because they're being really vulnerable and open with you as a, maybe as a potential stranger for the first time and they're reaching out for help. So, okay, fine, you know, get the assessment, but really then take it to the next step and see, you know, what all is going on. So get the whole picture, the holistic picture of what led them to this point. And it sounds like even by doing that and listening to them and helping them sort through what is going on, then even that in itself is going to have a really, really big impact in just like helping them in the moment right then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, and we talk about this um, with my friend Sharon, who does a supervision um, training with me and she's supervised so many people. It's interesting. We, we have this pressure, I think, and certainly young therapists coming in and thinking like this person's coming for help and I need to help them on the first day. You know, I, they need, I need to lead with some smart intervention that's going to help them, you know? And the thing is, is like I said, you can't actually help them until you really understand their life and their problem and take it seriously and recognizing that right now, everything they're doing, they're doing it because they figured out that that's the best way to do it right now. And until we figure out a better way, we got to keep that best way. And then the week. And so, but, but there's that piece of when we've talked, I've talked about this with Sharon, it's like that those first few sessions with a client is really about really understanding trying to understand their situation, recognizing that the act of understanding somebody is hard. Like we have a hard time communicating how we actually feel. And certainly clients do because part of their issue, most people is that they lack the language to articulate their experience. 
And so we have very limited language around something like emotions even. And then how were emotions even expressed in their family of origin or in their kind of cultural norms? And that people have a hard time even communicating how they're feeling. And then we also have a hard time, most people acknowledging that, like for a great example is, you know, a client coming in saying, I'm feeling anxiety or I'm feeling depressed. And I would say this to the people that I'm supervising. It's like all of those emotional words, you need to unpack, unpack them. If someone says to me, sad, there are thousands of versions of sad. There's, I mean, for every single person out there, there's a different experience that led them to that moment of feeling sad. And, and, and so I want to unpack all of those things. So there's, there's ways in which when you're doing kind of that initial client um, relationship development. And I think that's the other piece I would hope that our people recognize in our trainings is that we're really focused on enhancing the relationship between the therapist and the patient and giving the therapist tools to create those conditions of a relationship because what we know, hands down, it doesn't matter what theory you're using. It doesn't, it, what matters is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient, but we don't train people in that. Right. So for example, in our tasks, so we have the first six hour course. And then the next six hours that I'm, that I'm doing, we are actually digging deeper into the tasks, the clinical tasks that the edge of life model expects the therapist to do. And then we, it gives you a guide and there's a handout with Again, you're looking at trying to understand the unique suffering of that individual. Um, but in the tasks, the, we include things that are standard in best practices protocols, like getting rid of the means and you know identifying coping. Like we do that, we cover those, but we add one of the critical things we add is the very first thing, the very first task is to express gratitude to that person for sharing. So back to your example where you're like, my supervisor gives me an assessment and I do the assessment and you know, we look at this holistic thing, like that's all well and good, except if you actually sit with somebody who's like, no, I wanna kill myself. Like what happens to us when we're actually in a lived experience with somebody who's in that state is so different than what we normally think of and kind of run through in what it's like to actually do an assessment, you know? and. Uh, I feel like the conversation of shifting to the, the realness of being with somebody who's suffering in this way, it, it's anxiety producing. And we are wired as human beings to avoid things that cause us anxiety. One of the things that the person on the other end is, like in your example where you're like, this person's time, most people who are thinking of killing themselves, when they go to therapy, they're testing out, seeing whether or not this person's going to be able to hold my suffering. And if you just run through a checklist of stuff, they, you know, that Sean Christopher Shea said the old myth was if you asked about suicide, it was going to cause someone to kill themselves. He's like, that's the old myth. The new myth is if you ask them, they're going to tell you the truth. And so that's the piece where people's comfort level, like when one of the, the main reason that with the, all these risk factors you come in, but like, what is the thing that pushes somebody over the actual edge of life to kill themselves? And certainly hopelessness is there. We know hopelessness is that, but beyond that, it's the experience of feeling like a burden, mm. 
feeling like a burden. And I can say this is true. When you're suffering like that and you feel this toxicity, you feel the weight of this toxicity, you feel like you are so toxic that nobody would want to be around you. You have this hor- all these horrible thoughts and you don't know who can hold them and you know that people would avoid and it's and people I had had friends in that period of my time that told me I was a burden they couldn't they couldn't handle but it's it's true and and it's and I'm glad I have friends that we have an honest relationship in that way that but like I said this idea of expressing gratitude but a therapist a client's going to pick up of whether that's genuine or not so part of this exercise is therapists checking in with their comfort level about being with somebody. And and we do this in the course with some experientials is really trying to put yourself weak. We can't go and like have people trained with real suicidal patients, right? We can't have, um, I mean, that's possible. We'd set up a hotline or those kind of training program, but for most people they're they don't get to practice this. They don't get to do a dry run. It's going to happen in the first time that they're really doing it for the most part. That's why we have to do these experientials to really kind of tap into how comfortable are you and that what the client needs is when you, when you express gratitude and say, you know, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you found me. I'm so glad you're reaching for help and having these thoughts of suicide. Like, what's that like for you? You know, and you're like, it's awful. It's so distressing. Or I had them, you know. And that I'm holding the space of thank you, like with all my heart, I'm so grateful that you're sharing this with me. And again, I want to tease this out because let's imagine that you haven't done this training and you don't know how to feel that way. And you have subconscious anxieties around suicide. If you have a disc, you don't feel supported at your agency, whatever, like you, you aren't ready for this. It's a big responsibility and you do any kind of signaling to that to the patient you could be sending a message to them that they're a burden even to a mental health provider you know all their family and friends have said go to therapy go to therapy go to therapy and then they come to therapy and this therapist clearly is not is just going through a checklist right not wanting to go to the edge with me at all yeah so it makes sense now you know from that perspective of why expressing gratitude is so important because it takes that burden off of them at least for that moment you're you're telling them that it's actually you're giving them positive reinforcement for a behavior that we want which is we want them talking about it mm-hmm. if someone's talking about doing it they don't want to do it so we want to give positive reinforcement out of the gates thank you so much for sharing this with me this is what i'm here for Let's figure out like, and I always, you know, we, in the opening assessment, you want to keep what's keeping them here. Something stopped them from doing it. Yeah. So we want to know that because we want to pull on that. We also want to start with like, are you experiencing it right now in the moment? Like when you're talking with me, because 99% of the time they're not going to be, which is important information for them to hear that this thing kind of comes in and out. And we're also popping them up into an experience that we try to get to with mindfulness, which I think sometimes people don't, again, it's kind of been stripped of its, um, in the field of mental health, I feel like meditation has been stripped from its Buddhist origins of cultivating compassion and these kind of things um, for self and others. 
But one of the things with having somebody in the moment just ask like, well, are you having thoughts of killing yourself right now? They have to you know, move up to a higher self position to observe themselves in a moment and then kind of check and say like, no, I'm not having them now. And that's the beginning of helping them to have an awareness of an experience of themselves, like where they have a separate view of this is kind of what my mind is doing when it's bringing all these thoughts in and I can start to be an observer of, you know, this suffering stranger comes to visit me. I mean, for me, my suffering stranger came like clockwork every morning at 5am. You know, as soon as I woke up, there it was. And like over the course of the day, it would kind of naturally leave, but there were things I could do that would help it go faster. And so that was all these kind of things that I figured out. And that's the, I think the other gift is my training gestalt therapy just helped me so much with this, um, the goal of gestalt therapy is to increase awareness. So it's basically helping people to become more aware of their experience as it's unfolding, which allows for more choices. You know, we're, we're so much uh, the way we just naturally kind of on autopilot with how we see things and how we react to things and gestalt slows that all down. And it's like, wait, how are you seeing things? And are there other ways to see it? Yes. The answer is yes. The answer is always, there are multiple ways to see every situation, infinite ways. There's no objective truth. It's all subjectivity. And we then have control and choice over how we perceive things and then how we choose to respond to them. And then what are the consequences of the response and all that stuff can be slowed down. And that's particularly important with suffering, because a lot of the things that we can do in our lives, we do so automatically. And when we start to recognize, even in the recognition of a choice, we become empowered. And then we can start to experiment with new ways of being without an attachment to a particular outcome. But just that in itself is the beginning of self-agency and a felt sense of self-agency. Right, right. I could hang out with you all day, Amanda. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing all of this. So the the course is called um, On the Edge of Life Introduction to Treating Suicidality. And I actually have it here in front of me. You have so many great um, sections to the course. I mean, the statistics, the phenomenology of suicide. You have you talk about a US, USA Today article, The Courage to Live Continuum the edge of life model. I mean, so much great information in here. Um, where can people, you know, find you, get connected with you, find out information on the course? Yeah. If you go to our uh, website, therapistdevelopmentcenter.com and then look under continuing education, the course is there. Um, maybe we can throw a link in here also. Uh, one of the things I want to highlight, there's a little lecture on there. It has to do with the hermeneutics of generosity and that one's really significant to me. And I think it's really applicable to young therapists coming out, certainly different generational differences and the kind of cultural life that we grow up in. Even if we grew up in the same country, like these different decades and stuff, right, have influences and seeing um, one of the things that came up when we created the course was a conversation about using the term committed suicide versus um, killing or um, committed suicide versus died by suicide and getting into some of this language sem semantics and stuff. And there was this kind of momentary push of we should go in and edit out all the times I said committed suicide and switch it to died by suicide because there's people who really feel strongly in that language. And I just put my foot down and said, no way. Because I think one of the things that terrifies me these days is what's happening in a broader culture with cancel culture 
and with these rapid pressures to change like how we speak and at the core like this cancer culture is creating conditions whereby people are going to be less likely to be honest and communicate than before even with each other because it's it's and i get into it here and in the difference between the hermeneutics of suspicion and the hermeneutics of generosity and hermeneutics is the study of how we interpret things the interpretation of something so phenomenology is is a, is out of the field of epistemology. Epistemology is how do we know knowledge? What is knowledge? And is there objective facts? And so phenomenology is is a branch of no everything is subjective. And so we can talk about our subjective experience. We can do things to try to get as close to a truth as possible without, but with an acknowledgement always that nobody can be the holder of absolute truth. Hermeneutics is actually like, no, we can have a lens when we approach something and that a lens is going, to interpret, is going to impact how I interpret something. And what's happened now in our culture is we are on this continuum of con hermeneutics of generosity where we assume goodwill of other people and hermeneutics of suspicion where we assume we're going to jump and be ready to point out anytime somebody has clearly offended somebody. And, uh, and the sad thing is, is that the reason people commit suicide is they don't feel understood. And if we now become more and more constrained and limited on what we feel like we can even talk about with our language that we use, we're making the matter worse. And certainly as therapists, being sensitive to and creating conditions where people feel comfortable using whatever language fits for them right. and that we and, and then I would say that should expand to your friend group and that should expand to your community because we're just attacking people over um, things and, and we don't give them any benefit of the doubt. And everybody is honed in on these minor words and it shows actually sadly to me the, 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 the we're seeing the long-term consequences and the mass consequences of social media. Hmm. And it's, you know, people are on it and they're engaged in it, but it's sad because the, the standard before when you wanted to have influence in a community, you would, could write a letter to the editor. It required the capacity to write, you know, three or four solid paragraphs and to have some kind of editing and stuff. And this new entry into the Fourier with just people being able to weigh in on these topics. And just honestly, the part that's so sad is seeing the anger and aggression and seeing people feeling compelled, you know, to correct, be correcting one another all the time, as opposed to saying, am I understanding you correctly? Right. You know, they're reacting to what they interpret the person is saying, as opposed to what, and not giving them a chance. And so to me, it's leading us down a pathway of um, people feeling more isolated, more fearful to even talk about their feelings for fear that they are going to um, you know, offend somebody. And so a therapist needs to be really sensitive to that. And, um, and I, this, one of the things that came up around this is somebody said, sent us a test question that they had missed where the question had to do with the, th the client expressing racist, ra race, um, racist comments, you know, about a group in therapy. And one of the answers had to do with, um, you know, educating the client on, on racism and, um, and that was the wrong answer. <laughs> and this person wrote back and was like, well, we have a responsibility to do that and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, not in therapy guys, not in therapy, 
none of therapy. Like I, and I worked and this is, I worked in inner city LA going into projects, working with diverse, pretty much mainly non-white clients. A lot of them were racist. It was part of how they survived. You know, there were gangs and there were these things that, and, and would express racist views. And I was like, no way was I going to hear as this white girl come in here and try to educate them on this. And the sad thing is, is I would hope that people, when they listen to that part of the lecture, realize the, the broader implications of how quick are you to jump on the dog pile of attacking someone for saying this or like, does it, is it off-putting for you if someone doesn't put their pronouns on their emails? Like, does that, is that a, what sign is that for you if they do it? Or what sign is it that they do? You know, I'm not going to put my pronouns on my email ever. Why? Because I never have. And I also feel like it's when I do like I'm exposing some part of my sexual orientation. Like there's just something that doesn't feel right to me. And that has nothing to do with me wanting to support people who consider themselves non-binary. But unfortunately, we're in this cult, this weird peer pressure culture of changing how we communicate and all this stuff. And that if we don't do it right, we're doing something wrong. And I said to my staff, the last thing I want people to take away from my course is that when you talk about suicide, you have to do it in a specific way. No. This is a this is a topic we don't talk very much about, if at all. So we all are struggling with the language itself because we're using it for the first time. Yeah. So let's have a, a, a hermeneutics of generosity where we're going to assume goodwill. And if there's a moment where we're flashed, where we're concerned, where we have some negative reaction, get curious about it because that's mostly you. That reaction is entirely you. What the person intended could be completely opposite, but if you come at them with anger and accusation and whatever, you're going to get met with defensiveness and shame and these other things. And now we're off racing down this path of, of um, further alienation from one another. Yeah, that's my two cents on that topic. I mean, <laughs> brought up so many great points because there's, I mean, even over the just over the past two years, there's been so many evolutions on what we're supposed to say, what we're not supposed to say. Um, I got called out for for referring to the women's hospital, which is literally the name of the women's hospital. And they're like, what about people who don't identify as women who are there? What do you call them? And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. Or um, no, I mean, so I, just, I just want to say it's like this is what's so absurd is that we're, we're like debating semantics of like random concepts that we all, we, we all can't ever fundamentally agree on because they're still, they're not even real in themselves. And there's, you know? yeah, there's so many things to remember, like she, her, and then appreciate the land that we're on. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I forget all of these things that we're supposed to do. And no. And that's the thing is that they're, they're, basically they're like, you're not allowed to talk that way because if you talk that way, that's somehow an indication that you yourself are, that there's like this preemptive assumption that you're actively trying to marginalize and oppress certain groups of people that probably aren't even listening and paying attention. And if you actually checked in with them, didn't pay attention or care, they have much bigger things to worry about than like whether or not you use the word women's hospital to describe something called 
the women's hospital. It's like, right. I've been told I can't use the word slave as a metaphor anymore in language. Like, oh, you know, you're a slave to this boss or, or the word, you know, thought police. No, we shouldn't use police because people's feelings about police. I'm like, like every time I talk, someone's can tell me that like this word, oh no, that word is now can't, we can't use that. We can't celebrate our founding fathers who founded this company on free speech so that we could, you know, have a democracy you know, all these things that we are actually, what's sad to me is cancel culture is basically getting rid of the, one of the founding principles of this country that's key to democracy, which is freedom of speech. It's a slippery slope when we start canceling people. There's a difference between somebody doing an actual act of violence, an actual aggression, that's an actual, like I'm physically hurting someone, right? I mean, there's things that were mandated to report and break confidentiality are, which are related to physical harm of another person. And now we're treating this, this new nuanced group of language. Um, I will use the word police. I will use, you know, like monitors that somehow, it, and, and honestly, it's it, to me too, it's, I think it is an outgrowth of COVID and people having so much time on their hands at home, kind of that, that it is that we've gone down this, um, crazy talk path where we can't um, have normal conversations without being accused, where, where people lose the underlying intention and um, cultivation of a new idea or thought or connection with another person because we're too busy saying like, you can't use the word woman because you might offend someone. It's like, well, are they here right now? That's the whole point with the suicide thing is like the people that have actually committed suicide um, they aren't here to tell us whether or not they are offended by that. Me saying the word committed suicide as opposed to died by suicide. And that anytime we waste debating that instead of actually talking about what's going to make a difference in saving people's lives is a tragedy in my mind. So it's something I am passionate about and was really glad that it came out of my team's review and discussion of the course is the need for, no, we need to push for a hermeneutics of generosity. We need to push for a, um, a, a viewing of the suffering other from a place of, I'm not going to sit here and pass judgment over the language you use, knowing to me that most likely you're suffering just like most people on this earth are suffering. You know, very few people on this earth are free of, of emotional suffering. It's part of the human condition. And if we remember that when we engage with people, I mean, that's the sad thing too, with social, the onset of social media and the power that that kind of thing has on pushing people over the edge of life. People kill themselves because of how they're treated in, you know, social media and these things and the way that we attack and counterattack, or especially around a cancer culture is, um, in my opinion, bullying and abusive. Right. Anyway, that's where yeah. I stand on yeah. that. <laughs> like I said, I can hang out with you all day, Amanda. Uh, but thank well, you have so me much. back. Yes. People can, if, they, if they like my angle on things, we have a lot of courses where you get to hear me um, tell you what I really think. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Amanda, for having you on the Social Workers Rights podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please open up your iTunes, tap the five stars, and leave a short note on why you love listening to the Social Workers Rise podcast. 
Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week.